I'm Alex Auerbach, and I'm a performance psychologist with experience working in the NBA, NFL, with elite military units, and Fortune 5 executives. I'm excited to bring you the Perform podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for teams, individuals, and organizations, so that you can be your best when it matters most. Welcome back to the podcast. Delighted to be joined today by Dr. Scott Goldman, sports psychologist with experience in the NFL, NBA, and a whole bunch of other places. Scott, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Alex? Scott, to, I, I'm great, and I'm really happy to have you here. Obviously, we've known each other for a bit of time, uh, so it's always a cool opportunity to interview kind of a mentor and someone who's been a leader in the field. You really paved the way for me and certainly changed the way I think about the work we do. Can you tell listeners about your role and what you do as a sports psychologist at the highest level in sports? Yeah, you know, um, I always am grateful when I have the opportunity to kind of educate because I think our industry has really been confusing over the last couple of decades. You know, are you a performance guru? Are you a mental health provider? Are you somebody who's more like industrial organization psychology where you're helping system dynamics? And, and I think all of those kinds of domains are things that fall under our scope of care. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, me as a professional, I've tried to provide great depth and breadth across all three of those subject matters. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist by trade and training, um, by trade and training. And then I am also, uh, I, you know, I received two PhDs, one's in clinical psychology, the other one's in school psychology. So thinking of coaching as a pedagogy, you know, coaching is teaching. So I'm really invested in the relationship between coaches and uh, players and that dynamic both from a teaching mechanism and a learning mechanism, as well as also relationship maintenance, which then naturally folds into that kind of like system dynamic stuff, which is how I like to phrase it instead of using the word culture, which feels a little too nebulous to me. So the idea here is like, I see the role of how I do the job, I guess, is to be a sports psychologist is to really be of service to anyone and everyone in the building from ownership, front office, coaches, players, and everybody that services all three of those domains. I know from the way that you do your work and, and how that differs maybe from some of the way the work is positioned now leads you to doing things like working more with coaches and providing coach education or doing more work with the front office, as well as the direct player care that we typically associate with roles like this. Could you maybe put the player care aside for a minute? and talk a little bit more about what it looks like to work with head coaches at the highest level and how you interface with the front office and decision makers. You know, it's funny. So this is really a testament to your brilliance, Alex, because the question actually, I think, leads to the real enlightened answer. And it took me like 20 years to discover this. You know, when I first started doing this, I was really invested in the players. And I thought, okay, you know, you focus on the players, you get the players right, you get the person right, you get the players right kind of thing. And what I've now evolved in my own thinking is if you can set up a really healthy environment, then people can just naturally grow. So to your point within the question is I find myself spending more time with coaches, front office and and uh, an ownership about how do we create an optimal environment and then the players naturally grow within it. I, it seems to me like that makes a, a it's just a, a lot more of a natural kind of impact. 
I think you're giving me too much credit, but I do think there's a there's an element of scalability to that that I really like. And I know that's how I do my work too, is it's really hard to individually connect with each player. I don't think you can be all things to all people, even on a roster of 16 guys in the NBA. And so if you can help shape a larger cultural or system environment that promotes health and high performance, you're going to reach everyone without having to be everyone's go-to person. And, you know, for those who, who maybe aren't as familiar, like all these guys have people outside the building they're using for a bunch of different services. And so everyone, it can't be everyone's person, you know, they're, they all have different specializations. So let's, let's dive in a bit deeper. Like what does it actually look like to work with, let's say the front office on creating this environment or system that promotes better performance for the athletes? Yeah. So with the front office, I think it really starts with onboarding as well as offboarding the right people. So, um, you know, goodness of fit is everything. I think some of the teams that I work with, we've been dialoguing a lot about it's okay to let a player be good for someone else if we know they're not going to be great for us. And that's a pretty tough decision because especially in the pro space where you know the fan base and the media are going to be like, oh, what are you guys doing? What a bunch of idiots. But it's like, look, we know that they're not a good fit here. And part of that good fit can be system design, like the way that we calculate how we do things X's and O's, strategy and tactics. But it can also be from a locker room dynamic too of like, gosh, you know, we've got a lot of nice guys in the locker room and we, we need somebody who can maybe help pull the accountability aspect out of folks. So I, I think really it starts with onboarding and offboarding the right people. So that way you have, I mean, it's funny, right? Like I have found when um, teams try to force the culture moniker, i.e. like putting words on a wall, for example, it tends to just fall flat. But when you find the right people and you bring them into the building, the adoption is right there from day one because there's an alignment and vision, values, and um, pursuits. Yeah, I mean, it, it also fits with what you're saying, fits with some of the interesting research on like coach turnover, roster turnover, where you know they found that if you replace the head coach, the winning percentage doesn't change all that much. But if you replace a bunch of players, winning changes a lot. Um, and so it speaks to how important it is to get it right. And we've both been parts of draft, draft classes where um, the media has a sense of who might be the right person to take. The organization has a different sense. Uh, you might get criticized fairly publicly in the short term. And then, you know, depending on how it works out, you're either a genius or uh, a villain and you should be fired. H how do you manage that dynamic with a group making these kinds of pressure situations, uh, pressure decisions? Are there specific things you steer them toward to understand goodness of fit and what matters? Yeah, no, great question, but let's go back a step because you made a really cool point and I want to pull on that thread. I, I have found there is this really interesting paradox because in order to have longevity, like in the NFL or the NBA, from a coaching front office standpoint, in order to have longevity, you need success. But sometimes that short-term boost of success can be at a sacrifice for establishing the foundations or the pillars for longer-term like a longer runway. So I came across an interesting study done with the English Premier League where they found that managers, the head coaches in the English Premier League, if they were players from that particular organization, they were given more grace and longevity of um, acceptance by the fan base and the media. 
So they didn't win more games initially, but they were less likely to be fired, giving them a little bit longer runway to kind of get their flow and their system in the building. And I mean, I don't know how dated this, this uh, podcast will be, but you look at kind of like what happened with Dan Campbell, who used to play for the Detroit Lions. Initially in the first interview process, like his, his welcome to the league kind of interview, he talks about biting kneecaps. People were laughing at him and they were joking and everything else. Then he has a horrible first year, then a horrible uh, first half of his second year. And I don't know how many coaches would have survived that kind of um, turbulence, but because I think he was from Detroit, you know, quote unquote, like he was a, a lion in his blood. I just think he had a longer runway and then things started to click. And then all of a sudden last year they had their hockey stick moment. So I just, I, I wanted to make the point because I think you're making a really important point here, which is the paradox of short-term success that sacrifices the longevity is, is really hard for coaches to overcome. And I think one of the things that the English Premier League found was if you want, if you want your fan base and your media to be a little bit more tolerant, hire someone that reminds them of a warmer time in that career, in that organization's um, narrative or history. Now, going back to what's a good fit, and, and thanks for letting me kind of wax poetic. Um, I think a good fit consists of four buckets, right? Like you've got your physical aspects. So whether we're talking about rugby, football, basketball, I mean, you know, some teams like to be fast. Some teams like to be big. Some teams like to be strong. So you, you have this kind of interesting philosophy, like in the NFL, is it ground and pound? Or in the NBA, is it transition basketball? But there's this physical component. Then you have experience. And that's the second bucket is experience or knowledge. So for example, in basketball, you know what kind of player you're getting from Air, University of Arizona system versus a kind of player you're getting from University of Kansas, uh, Kentucky, you know, that kind of stuff. Similarly in the NFL, you know what kind of linebacker you're getting from Alabama or, or Clemson or, or any defensive player for Georgia, for that matter. Uh, offensive line in, in University of Michigan. The third bucket is intelligence, which I think is, is something that's rarely explored and maybe should be explored more. But if you think about sports as this unsolvable puzzle, right, it's just this constantly mutating challenge. Um, no different than, say, like a firefighter who kicks a door down and has to look for threats and danger as well as the people to save. I mean, that's a very similar kind of cognitive profile or delivery as a quarterback who's doing pre-snap reads and making adjustments at the, at the line of scrimmage. So intelligence, I think, is a really important part of this four-bucket um, domain that I don't know is being utilized or evaluated as well as it could be. And then the final one is uh, personality, which is really hard to kind of grasp, which is, you know, is this guy going to be locker room poison or is he going to be, you know, our kind of guy, so to speak? Yeah, I want to double click a little bit on the intelligence and personality buckets. I mean, even thinking about we we both watched the Super Bowl last night um, from, I think, neutral lenses with no no real affiliations to either either program now. Um and I noticed, and I know we were exchanging some texts about this, Tony Romo kept mentioning spatial awareness in the quarterback play of both uh, Brock Purdy and Patrick Mahomes. 
And he just kind of casually slipped it in, you know, a few different times. But even my wife at one point looked at me and he's like, he keeps saying spatial awareness. Like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, we don't have enough time to explain this. We're going into overtime right now. You know, I can't, I can't dive deep into spatial awareness. But what I did also notice was, you know, there wasn't a lot of conversation aside from all the Taylor Swift stuff that was awesome. There wasn't a lot of conversation about like personality or man, he's just a great locker room guy. A couple articles came out about Travis Kelsey making his teammates cry before the, the, before the game with kind of impassioned speech. And so maybe that fits into personality, but in live play, no one was really talking about that. And I guess I'm curious if you notice anything like that, or if you think there's a reason for that kind of analysis. Yeah. I, I think what we've watched in the last 10, 15 years is a real evolution across all sports, but let's just take the NFL. Cause that's the one you brought up. We have added more resources, like the expansion of of sport as an entertainment industry and the amount of money and everything. So, you know, it's interesting because you can hear generational quips like, well, back in my day, you know, we pitched on three days rest and, and, and all of this other kind of dialogue. And I think what's really interesting is the level of sophistication that goes on in pro sports, as you know, being in the building and, and myself being in the building, like it's funny even like during the off season, like, right. Like you said, Super Bowl just ended. A lot of people just go, well, there's no games to be played. These coaches must be like sitting on a beach somewhere. I mean, it's like, nope, right now they're cutting film. They're getting their playbooks ready for next year. They're evaluating talent for the upcoming draft. Like it never stops. So going back to your question, I think what you're seeing is, well, going back to the four buckets, strength and conditioning has really become sophisticated how they work these guys out, how they, 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 they load, you know, factor load on these folks, you know, increasing agility, strength, mobility, injury prevention. Like there's a lot of stuff out there, nutrition and everything else. So they kind of got this bucket, right? The ability to watch game film. I mean, we've never had more technology and more eyes on games than ever before. So we really have this bucket, the personality stuff. Gosh, I mean, like you said, I don't think that it's, it's not that it's not talked about, it's just, it's all over the place. Like this thing is such a moving target. It fluctuates and everything else. But then we go back to spatial awareness. Spatial awareness falls right into that intelligence bucket. And, and, and it's cool that it's being talked about because like I was saying, I think this is the next, this is the next um, competitive advantage. And so I think what Tony Romo was really referencing is both Andy Reid, Coach Reid, and Coach Shanahan, their offenses are, I mean, this is chess, not checkers. It's amazing to watch. Like, if you, you know, so I worked with several NFL teams and I currently work with an NFL team. And being in those installs and watching some of the, the play design, I mean, it's amazing to see what they're doing. And spatial awareness is really about knowing where you are in relation to, key landmarks on the field, like the sidelines or the first down marker, as well as your teammates and opponents. So, you know, a lot of that kind of like movement, pre-snap movement that you see from Kyle Shanahan's offense, like this is how he's shaping the NFL. Guys going in motion and kind of factor loading. It's all about knowing where you are so that when, when you receive the ball and you rotate and have to now move forward, you have this real presence and familiarity. I mean, it was exciting to watch them talk about spatial awareness as well, because um, 
I think both of these teams have very intelligent play. Well, I know this because I've seen some of their intelligent scores uh, on the AIQ and, and what they're doing. Both these teams have very smart players doing a lot of really smart things. I want to thumbtack and come back to the AIQ and what that is. I know we're, we're both familiar with that and have seen it play a role in success for teams in NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, across kind of all major sports. But I want to unpack intelligence a little bit more um, because I think this is something you've really pioneered in our field, at least in terms of exploring how important intelligence might be. And I think the example you just gave of these complex offenses provides a really nice illustration of why something like intelligence matters to just kind of walk it back for a moment like tell us what intelligence is and then why it matters for things like sports so sometimes it's funny right like trying to talk about what something is you almost have to kind of say what it is not so you'll hear this in any building basketball building nba building nfl building mlb building any building they'll talk about like oh this guy's got great you know football iq or this guy's got great baseball iq and it's funny because Football IQ is really, again, going back to the four buckets, that's really the knowledge thing. So if you play in a 3-4 defense, and then all of a sudden you're drafted and now you have to play in a 4-3 defense, your football IQ of being in that 3-4 defense is going to be a potential disadvantage because it's so different than a 4-3. Going to intelligence, intelligence really kind of factor loads on all kinds of things, the ability to digest and acquire information. So studying the playbook and installs and things like that. How well, how many reps does it take? So there's that element to it. Then there's the ability to be just creative and the ability to improvise. So you saw this, you know, in the Super Bowl where, you know, play broke down and Patrick Mahomes was able to successfully navigate and improvise, whether he was elongating the play or causing a level of chaos that people now had to adjust to on the fly. So intelligence is huge in, um, you know, getting rid of or knowing when to jettison a play that's broken down or not working, and then to come up with a creative or new way of thinking. And then it's also about the ability to kind of mutate and apply information in a way that you process it, right? Oh, um, like there's always this great story about how Bill Walsh discovered the West Coast offense. Have you ever heard this one? I, 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 I love it. Sorry. All right, sweet. So back when Bill Walsh was working on the offensive side of the ball for Cincinnati Bengals, there was this film where the tight end lined up in the wrong side of the of the line. He goes in motion. So he, he, they didn't really have players going in motion a whole lot then. So what happened was, is the quarterback saw they lined up in the wrong spot and told him to, to go in the other. And when he did that, the two linebackers that were assigned or the one linebacker that was assigned to the tight end, as he goes in motion, runs into the other and they both fall down. Well, the way that the story's told is the whole offensive coaching staff started laughing at this, like, ha, 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 like a blooper reel. And Bill Walsh went, wait a minute, what if we created that kind of confusion from pre-snap movement on purpose? And that was it. That's the birth of the West Coast offense. And what you're seeing now with like Kyle, Coach Shanahan, Coach McDaniel in Miami, you know, um, Ben Johnson in Detroit, uh, Coach Johnson in Detroit, um, Coach McVay, like they're doing a lot of this amazing stuff 
And so I think intelligence is the ability to, to take this coaching information and then kind of run with it, almost like the same way a musician might have a certain series of notes, but then when they're on stage, they can just kind of go off and play off of it. It's, 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 it's a great time to be a fan of the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball if you value the ability to do smart things because some of these guys are just doing genius stuff. Yeah, I mean, you saw it last night, even at the the end of the game, where uh, the play design, Tony Romo broke it down fairly brilliantly, talking about, you know, moving the player emotion and kind of disguising and moving someone's eyes and the information they're searching for. I mean, there's just so many layers to effectively executing a play like that. And what I hear you saying is really intelligence is kind of, in a sense, like gives a player the ability to fully grasp or maybe not so fully grasp this level of complexity and be able to execute it. I'm curious if like in your view, I know it's not this black and white, but does level of intelligence sort of like in a way impact or constrain for lack of a better word, what you can or can't do with certain players? Cause I would see that being, you know, tremendously valuable to know. It's not necessarily about do or don't involve this player as much as it's, you know, we're all trying to figure out how do we put these guys in the best position to be successful. And I guess that's what I'm taking away is this data point sounds like it would let me do that more effectively than just, I hope you can figure out what I'm putting in front of you. Yeah, I mean, what a brilliant question. Brilliant question. So going back to the four domains, the one that I try to, I try to take ownership of the two domains, the intelligence and the personality. The personality, I use a, a very structured interview because the literature shows a good structured interview helps with that. And intelligence, I use the AIQ. Now, to your point, and I think we got to be careful here because this is an important distinction. I like how you say impact or constraint because it's not about good or bad. So one of the things when I'm in front of a front office person who's considering the AIQ is I say, look, there's no good or bad on our measure. There's just no good or bad. And the reality is whether you have this information or not, it exists. So if someone scores high or strong, uh, on certain cognitive bills or if they score low or are areas to um, be aware of as a wobble, it exists whether you know it or not. So you might as well know it. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing to your point is, okay, now that you know it, what can you do with it? And this goes back to what we started the conversation with, which is goodness of fit. So can you do things and teach in ways that are a little bit more concrete and direct? Can you come up with devices and tricks to help um, somebody uh, still absorb the information without impacting their bodies by a high volume of reps? Absolutely. And I think that's the gift. I, I found, I'm sure you would agree, really good coaches, they figure this stuff out. And really great coaches figure it out more quickly. And that's the, the idea of the AIQ and the focus on the intelligence is, oh, so you're saying like this person might struggle with um, trying to catch a ball over his shoulder and a comeback route might be a better, a better mechanism. Yes. Or, oh, you know, this, this linebacker might get a little bit confused trying to look in the backfield and recall the information that was taught to him on Thursday based off of what you were saying where the running back puts his hands on his thighs and things like that. Like 
there's so many little nuances to this game. It's so complicated. It's, it's orchestrated chaos. And I think if you understand somebody who can think dynamically, um, you can do X, Y, and Z things. But if somebody thinks more concretely, you can still do X, Y, and Z things. You just might have to do it through a different route. And I think that's what makes tools like this so impactful is that you can figure out the best way to do it versus either not doing it all. Or, you know, I know, unfortunately, we've both been in situations where a coach gets frustrated with a player and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this guy just, he just can't learn it or they just don't know what's going on. Or worse, you have players who can't actually see the floor because they can't recall the system, but it's not because they're incapable. It's just there's a mismatch between potentially teaching and what they can absorb or the pace or all these other things. And I think what you're saying is capturing intelligence really allows you to figure out the best way to put your team in a position to be successful, which is ultimately what we're all trying to do at the highest level and how you get the most out of your team. Yeah, I think in the most optimal worlds, we just want everything to be perfect and beautiful and everything else. And we know that in real life, that rarely ever happens. So what I find when there's a coach-player disconnect, the the kind of theme that I hear mostly from a coach is, hey, they either don't know or they don't care. And the assumption more often than not is they don't care. And I think when you measure both the personality and the intelligence, you have an understanding more of what the ratio is between the don't know, don't care. And that I find to be a really beneficial recalibration for coaches. Sure. Certainly a more accurate picture, like the the will and skill dynamic versus incapable or not. And that's very black and white. I'm curious, I guess, like, how do you even come to understanding what parts of intelligence matter for sports? I mean, I know we're, we're both trained as psychologists, right? And so having been exposed to some intelligence tests, I mean, there's some things that come on there that I wouldn't imagine play any part in, in sports, like knowing who the fourth president of America was, which I'm pretty sure I couldn't recall right now sitting here. And then there are going to be other buckets that seem like they could be pretty relevant, like holding information in mind. So I guess like, how, how do you figure out what parts of intelligence matter most here? And maybe well, explain to us parts of intelligence for those who aren't trained as psychologists. <laughs> sure. I mean, first of all, it's funny that you talk about the fourth president, because the one that always got me when I was studying this stuff was when they asked, what's a schooner? And I said, I don't know what a schooner, I, I'm from the desert. I'm, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you know, you grew up in Arizona, right? And so it's just like, you don't know what a schooner is. I don't know. You know, for those that do know and are laughing at us both, like, and for those that maybe don't know, like a schooner is just a boat, right? But there is a geographic disadvantage to two desert rats like yourself and, and myself that have a disadvantage. So when we developed the AIQ, my partner, Jim Bowman and I, we started with the concept of first, we need to define what sport is. And we said sport is a constantly evolving, unsolvable puzzle. It is chaos. Then we spent 15 years looking at what cognitive abilities are most necessary in situations like that. We didn't just look at sport. We looked at the military, firefighters, first responders, um, airline pilots, astronauts. So the idea is when you're in a chaotic situation, what cognitive abilities do you need? And so to your point, like when you're in a chaotic situation, like a burning building or, you know, the safety blitz <laughs> or a quarterback blitz is coming, like, I don't think you need to know what a schooner or the fourth president is. But the cognitive ability to be able to read and recognize that if you step up in the pocket 
or if you scan um, high to low or some other kinds of mechanisms, that does become important. So for 15 years, Jim and I looked at the most relative cognitive abilities, and then we found where they already existed in the most um, in the highest standards of of uh, empirically validated practice, which would be the Cattell-Horn Carroll theory of intelligence. Um, so things that, that the AIQ measures, for example, one is visual spatial processing, knowing where you are in relation to other people, the ability to scramble, the ability to adjust, the ability to know where you are. So, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I wish we used more like sport friendly terms, but I feel like if we did that, we diluted the essence of the label. But if we were talking about it in baseball, it's it's really about court awareness and floor spacing. We're talking about in football, we're talking about like really about field presence, you know, or field awareness. Next one's reaction time. And we don't just measure like the speed of reaction time, like bang, bang, stimulus response. Think starter pistol goes off and we're off and running. We also measure the accuracy, which I think also identifies people's ability to concentrate or focus. So again, like a wide receiver who has to catch a ball when the ball has been thrown before they make their break. So the ball's in midair when they turn. These have less time to react to that stimulus. Next one's decision-making, which is really the ability to identify important details so you can make quick and accurate decisions. Again, a good example of that might be a defensive back who's studying the wide receiver and saying, oh, you know, the way his feet are placed on the ground suggests he's going to go cross versus going um, on, a, on a post. And then uh, the last one's learning efficiency, which is the ability to download and recall information. So studying the playbook and, and you know, sometimes like you call play up in a timeout and you draw something up on a dry erase board, that can be harder for a player or in football, it's about studying formation photographs. That can be harder for a player when their better match for understanding is, hey, let's talk about what we did on Thursday at practice, or let's talk about what we did two weeks ago against Buffalo. Um, again, going back to what it is versus what it isn't, talking about schooners and presidents, um, one of the things that we were super mindful about was the international aspect of sport. And so when we identified the cognitive abilities, we also made Real, like we put a lot of time and attention in making sure that we were accurately um, capturing one's true cognitive abilities, whether they were born in the United States, that would be your fourth president question versus born in say, you know, Europe or Australia, who would have a clear disadvantage to the president question. Geography, scooter question, we eliminate all those. So we wanted to be able to accurately measure someone's true ability, whether they were from some small farm town in Iowa or inner city Miami. Um, so things like race, religion, socioeconomic status, country of origin, like we eliminated any of those biases from our tests. So that way um, everybody had equal access and opportunity to understanding how they process the information. I like that a lot. And I think, it, I mean, obviously that's a huge advantage for the teams using it is to know that this works for essentially anyone. And it also gives the player a real fair shake at demonstrating what they're capable of so that again, the team can put them in a position to be maximally successful. And, you know, you, you sort of left this out of the Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory explanation, but I think a part of this too is 
intelligence, from what I know, is one of the best predictors of success across fields. And I think it sounds like what you did was really make a deliberate attempt to figure out what parts of intelligence most apply to sports. But we know intelligence matters for surgeons, pilots, firefighters, academic performance, career performance, and longevity. I think it's the best predictor we have of, of success in those different spaces. Um, and so it would make sense that it would matter a lot in sports too. Yeah, it's a great point. I think the reason why I omitted it is because that word prediction in sport is a tricky one because I, like you, having been in the building for 25 years, I have found a lot of people selling a lot of magic beans and uh, tinctures and all kinds of magical items by saying, I can predict, right? And I always tell GMs and presidents and coaches, like, look, if I could predict, I'd, I'd just say, hey, I'd go straight to the owner and say, look, fire the entire front office, like, hold my beer, I got this kind of thing. Or I'd just go to Vegas and, and just, you know, use my super prediction model. But with that said, you're right, like, there is an element of statistically significant correlation between intelligence and job performance. And What's really kind of cool is because we've been in, in the world of sports since 2012, longer than any other vendor out there, what we have found is um, we've actually published three white papers, which is a peer-reviewed journal um, identifying statistically significant correlation between AIQ scores and on-field performance in the NFL for both across a wide variety of positions, including quarterback. And I mean, pretty significant stuff like, um, you know, ability to turn the ball over, uh, get tackles for losses, rushing yards, passing yards, like, all, like rushing touchdowns, big play throw opportunities. I mean, like really significant stuff. Uh, same thing, we've, the second one that we published was in Major League Baseball, which showed key hitting and pitching statistics. AIQ scores significantly correlated with those. And then in the NBA, same thing, like field goal efficiency and turnover rates. And so I, I think what we have found is a useful tool that identifies that third bucket of intelligence in a very meaningful way across all sports. So like I said, it's an exciting time to be involved in this, in this world. I appreciate your delicacy with how you're couching this too, because you're also not saying the other three buckets don't matter. That's you're right. just saying this, this is a bucket that we haven't done a great job historically of capturing. And now all of a sudden in the 2024 Super Bowl, we're talking about one of these abilities on, on repeat. I mean, I must've heard spatial awareness under four or five different circumstances, four or five different times, often referring to the quarterback. But in some cases, he's talking about Patrick Mahomes stepping up in the pocket and keeping his eyes downfield. In other cases, he's talking about Brock Purdy scrambling and looking for something new. Uh, maybe tell us more about how these abilities actually play out in a game like the Super Bowl, since Tony Romo spent so much time talking about that. Well, I think you just hit the nuances perfectly, right? Like what we're talking about is, there are these like, well, let me go back. So let's talk about the NFL, a league that's built on parity, right? It, it, you're either nine and eight or you're eight and nine. And, and I think, you know, again, my time in the NFL, one of the things I've appreciated is if you have a long enough conversation with a front office, coaching staff or a player, if you have a long enough conversation, at some point they'll say, you know, if we had just in, in week four, if we had just converted that fourth down, we would have we would have made the playoffs, 
And if we had made the playoffs, we would have beaten all these other teams. Like it, the, the margin of error is so slim. And so you go, okay, in these little moments, the nuances of what is causing success versus failure, it has such a rich, complicated and complex tapestry. So, you know, was the guy big enough, strong enough? So Patrick Mahomes, you know, stepping up and scrambling. Well, you got to be big and strong enough to get there. Then the idea is, all right, did he recognize the situation? Like, did he come from, and that's that knowledge bucket. And then it's also like, did he have the spatial awareness? Did he have the pocket presence? See, we used to use, and I think we still do, these kind of vague nebulous terms like pocket awareness. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean somebody who can stand in there and take a hit? like a Ben Roethlisberger or a Ryan Tannehill, like those guys were notorious for just willingness to take a hit. Is that pocket presence or is that is that toughness? Is that grit? So I think now that we're becoming more refined in our ability to understand the game, i.e. Tony Romo talking about spatial awareness, it becomes a really kind of neat thing where it's like, oh, so him stepping up in the pocket and extending the play that can come from reps and practice knowledge, or it can come from instinct. What does that mean? Instinct is intelligence. So I, I love the fact that Tony Romo is using the right term to describe what I think was a catalyst in that successful moment. Yeah, I think it adds rich kind of like color to the experience to not, you know, to your, your point, kind of vague terms like, toughness or pocket presence or whatever and to actually give people language to describe it so we understand what we're looking at and then of course like that also helps you know younger sports fans and people in other sports like they get a sense of what's going on and you can kind of anchor in something and I think what what's neat about what you're describing is it can also be kind of a both end right you can be Ben Roethlisberger standing in the pocket and have pocket presence or spatial awareness and toughness and those two things combine to lead to one outcome and then you might be a different quarterback and you might use spatial awareness and be not be so willing to stand in the pocket it may not mean you're not tough right but may mean you have other abilities or other things that allow you to move the field more effectively using other skills that you have or other personality traits you might lean on and all of them are worth understanding and it sounds like the deeper we get in to grasping who these players are and and how they process the game or how they process information the better we're going to be able to understand what's really going on and make sense of, or try to get close to making sense of these things that we all really enjoy watching and think of as sort of artful. I think what's really interesting is, you know, it used to be, oh, this guy has it, whatever it is. Like that was it. It was like, oh, he has it. And then everybody in the room go, yep, he has it. And it's like, okay, well, what does it mean? And now we have these video games where they'll have these bars or they'll have like the little, you know, the spider web graph or whatever graph, but it's all about like, if we can measure it, then we can replicate it as well as amplify it. So I think what we're seeing is we're now in a day and age where we're measuring things like physically, like how much, how fast they can run or how much mileage they put on their bodies throughout the course of the game through like GPS trackers and and so it's just, again, I think our, our understanding of the sport has never been more sophisticated. It used to be kind of like, do you watch car racing for, do you watch NASCAR for the car crashes or 
or what? And I think there was a, a time where we as the human beings that watch these things kind of almost had this gladiator, gladiator, gladiator. Let me try that again. Um, there's almost the, there was this time where it was almost kind of like just the modern version of the of the of the gladiator, the man in the arena kind of stuff. But I think we've evolved away from that sort of bloodthirst. Like you know, the rules have changed. Like people don't get hit the way they once were. And so I think what we're watching is a migration to a more enlightened era of sport, which includes the idea of smart people doing smart things. And this is chess, not checkers. So you've given us the, the kind of four buckets captured on the AIQ and that matter for intelligence and in sports. You give us visual spatial processing, reaction time, processing speed, and learning efficiency. We've got a few minutes left here. I wonder if we could just dive deeper into each of those four buckets with maybe a few kind of real world examples so that people can really grasp just how important this is and, and how much this can make a difference in understanding how your players perform. Yeah. Um, which sport do you want to do a deeper dive on? NFL, NBA? Or let's go let's go NFL we've both got NFL on the brain having watched the Super Bowl last night and knowing that we've got still more NFL to go in the next few months here leading up to the end of April okay uh okay and while we're doing this improvised experience you want to go offense or defense let's go offense because I think people like points okay <laughs> uh, you want to go offensive line or you want to go quarterback or running back or wide receiver or Man, tight end? So so many options, but I like how this is going where there's they all matter differently. Let, let's take quarterback because I think we've been on Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy for a bit and just the general theme of spatial awareness. Let's let's unpack quarterback because I think we, we probably maybe we'd agree, maybe not. It's it maybe the most dynamic position in sports. And so I think it's a really cool case study to understand. For sure. OK, so I think most people know this, but if they don't, there is a time where the quarterback has the ability to talk to the play caller. And the play caller could be the head coach or the offensive coordinator. At around 16 seconds, that mic in the helmet gets turned off. And from that moment on, and this is why I think you're talking about the emphasis of how important uh, the quarterback position is. From that 16 seconds between um, the, the mic being turned off and, and the ball being snapped, there's a lot of things that can happen. So if you think about 16 seconds, it, it doesn't sound like a lot of time, but if we were to actually just sit here in silence for 16 seconds, we would go, wow, there is a lot more going on. So, all right. So what does the quarterback have to do in that 16 seconds? He's already called the play and that play might have a couple of different kinds of mutations to it. So that's element number one. And people with a high level of intelligence you can give them like, hey, two or three. So just generally speaking, someone with a high level of intelligence, you go, hey, uh, we're going to call this play, but it's going to have about six or seven different sub threads to it as you look and see what's going on. Someone maybe with uh, a more concrete profile, AIQ profile, it might be like, look, I'm just going to call the play. You go through your progressive reads, go for the first wide receiver. If that guy's not open, go for the second one. If he's not open, throw the ball out of bounds or run. Don't try to do anything more complicated. Just trust the play that's called kind of dialogue. But all right, so that's as we're breaking the huddle, right? So now you approach the line 
you got to now scan and look for important pieces of information. Now, some teams, the center will start to call line protection. Other teams, it could be the quarterback. So it starts with identifying the mic, right? Like, okay, who's the defender who kind of gives you the answer key to what everything else is going on and where, where the, uh, the defense might be trying to attack us kind of thing. So we have in the AIQ, it's something called multiple target search, which is the ability to scan and look for important details. So quarterback lines up, quickly has to identify the mic, has to identify the safeties. Are they kind of in zone coverage? Are they in man-to-man -man schemes? All of that. Then what we can do is we can put some players in motion. Thank you, Bill Walsh. And, uh, and see if that helps give some information. So one of the things that's kind of interesting, right, is when you put a player in motion, the defense is informed, or sorry, the defense gives away some of what they're doing. But the offense now has two players on one side of the ball versus keeping a player on each side of the ball where you can do all sorts of other dynamic things. Like we've now narrowed the field. So <laughs> with a more complicated quarterback who can do more complicated things, you don't have to give away as much because they can identify stuff without some of that kind of information motion movement. So multiple target search, I think is an incredibly important cognitive ability that comes into play. Um, <clears throat> then we have the ball gets snapped, right? And um, there's this pocket awareness. That's the spatial awareness that Tony Romo talked about. So the ability to kind of step up in the pocket or to roll out and then recalibrate where they are now that they've rolled out of the pocket and they have to recalibrate where they are in relation to where the wide receivers are. And then <clears throat> they reset. And then we have another cognitive ability called navigation which is all about like passing lanes and passing windows, right? So now so we're looking at windows and we're trying to identify, can I, can I thread the needle on this pass or not? Then you can use navigation again for finding an efficient route, like up with your feet. So now you're like, hey, I'm gonna scramble. Actually, sorry, let's go back a step. There is something that we have called reaction time distract where false information is present. One of the things that we found statistically significantly so was quarterbacks that kind of like can avoid losses, sacks, et cetera, their reaction time distract was really effective. So again, um, when you're looking downfield and you have a stimulus flash of like, say, a, an edge rusher swinging at one of your legs and you take off, reaction time distract is a big part of being able to identify true information and ignore false information when reacting. So I think what's really kind of exciting there is, so again, we've got multiple target search and identifying important details pre-snap. We've got spatial awareness, knowing where you are in the pocket. Then you have reaction time distract, which is like, oh my gosh, like, you know, that edge rusher is coming. So let me roll out. Spatial awareness kicks in again. We got to recalibrate. Then there's something that we call manipulation rotation, which is kind of like the ability to see the game flow. So as we're drifting and all the players start drifting with you, you kind of go, okay, I think here's what's going to happen next. This wide receiver is going to turn and go up, or this one's going to come back. You know, and, and most teams practice a scramble drill, which folds into the learning efficiency of like, oh, this is kind of like what we did all week, but it might be something unique. So it's not what we did all week. And now it becomes a field thing. Then we've got navigation. Do we have the passing lanes? 
Then we go, nope, it's time to take off and scramble. We use navigation again to weave through and then spatial awareness. Hey, I think we're close enough to the first down marker time to slide and avoid getting clocked by some uh, linebacker who's ready to crush us. I don't know if people could follow the flow of that because that's just how complicated I think intelligence is and also how essential it can be to a player's success or failure. Well, we might have to listen to it back a couple of times, but I think <laughs> what it illustrates is just that there's all these different abilities, real measurable cognitive abilities that the best athletes are using to actually execute. Something is perhaps like seemingly mundane as a scramble out of the pocket and throwing the ball out of bounds. Something that, you know, you or I watching with family and friends on a Sunday afternoon might think like, oh yeah, that's just, you know, typical football, you know, he's throwing the ball out of bounds, but it's really this complex process and a tapestry of all these different abilities. And I mean, you mentioned learning efficiency in terms of what he sees while scrambling, but there's also the learning efficiency pre-snap, right? Like, do I even remember what the coach just said in my ear or not? You know, all these things start before the play even begins, all of these factors are, are rolling out. And so I think it's just a fascinating deep dive into what it really looks like to perform at the highest level. I'm mindful of our time, grateful for having you. Can you tell us a little bit more about where people can find you, follow you, or learn more about your work online before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, it's funny um, to say this while being on a podcast, but like the reality is, is you know, one of my mentors told me it's really easy to see which way the camera's pointed and you can be in front of the camera or behind the camera. So I, I have this kind of training ingrained in me to be behind the camera and be of service. So I've never really marketed myself a whole lot. But um, but just to put it out there, you know, I am on Twitter. I think my handle is at uh, Scott Goldman or is it X? I don't know what we call it anymore, but it's like at Scott Goldman, PhD. Um, and then you can always find me through the AIQ website, which is AIQ.team, www.aiq.team. Um, and that's also a place where you can learn more about some of the aspects of intelligence that we've talked about as well. Um, and then you can always email me. I know that's kind of like old school, like, okay, boomer, but um, like, it's just my, my first initial, my first name, S Goldman at AIQ.team. We like old school ways of communication around here. Dr. Scott Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, it's it, this has been a real treat. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Perform Podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for individuals, teams, and organizations. Until next time, thanks for joining.